Welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. Hi, it's Nick. And for those who don't know me yet, I'm Open Research Advisor based in the library here at the University of Leeds. You're joining us in season three of the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. I'll be speaking to colleagues from both the University of Leeds and from other universities and organisations about open research, what it is, how it's practised in different disciplines and how it relates to research culture. If you haven't already, you can catch up with season one, which was an introduction to the podcast and to my co-hosts, and season two with my colleague Tony Bromley, who was in conversation with a number of presenters from the REDS Conference of 2022. That's the Research, Education and Development Scholarship International Conference held here in Leeds. But now I'd like to introduce my guest for today, Dr. Madeleine Pownell, a lecturer here at Leeds in the School of Psychology. Dr. Pownell completed her PhD this year in 2022 in social psychology. She's a, she is a Leeds Institute for Teaching Excellence Fellow, that's LIGHT for short, and has contributed extens- extensively to the Framework for Open and Reproducible Research Training, or FORT for short. So welcome to the podcast, Maddie. Is it okay yeah. to call you Maddie? Yeah, yeah, please do. Uh, and, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'm pleased to be here. Um, so perhaps we'll get onto your work with Light and, and the Fort communities. Uh, but firstly, congratulations on being HE Psychology Teacher of the Year 2022, I, I, which I spotted on, on Twitter. Yeah, um, that was recently. Um, yeah, and part of that was actually about some of the open research teaching bits that I do. So, yeah, thank you. No, yeah, congratulations. And I suppose um, that is related to teaching, which we'll come on to. I yeah. want to talk to, to you about teaching and, and, you know, open research skills in the curriculum and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But perhaps to start with, perhaps a little bit on, on your academic background, as I say, um, you are a lecturer here in the School of Psychology, but you only very quite recently finished your PhD. Yeah, so um, I joined the School of Psychology in 2018, and I had like a split um, postgraduate researcher with teaching contract. So it meant that when I first joined, I did a lot of undergraduate teaching, mainly research skills, statistics, things like that. And my PhD was in um, kind of like hardline social psychology, so sort of experimental social psychology, and then gradually more qualitative stuff. Um, but the one of the main theories that I was using in my PhD was called stereotype threat theory, which um, kind of unbeknownst to me, or I quickly learned, very quickly became the kind of like poster child for psychology's replication crisis. So I started this PhD in 2018. I didn't know a huge amount about like open research, open science, and then really quickly had to learn Mm -hmm. um, because I kind of found myself being embroiled in conversations about like reproducibility and replication and all of that kind of stuff. Um, So it was mainly from then that I then developed interest in open research, open science, rigorous research, all of this stuff. And now that's kind of what I do. So I finished my PhD uh, in April of this year, and now I'm a full-time teaching scholarship lecturer. And yeah, all of my kind of research scholarship, things like that now centres quite a lot on open research and particularly how we can embed it in pedagogical context. Yeah, well, certainly I've been working on that, uh, you and I, a little bit, and I'm really interested to sort of that in a bit more detail. But I suppose first to sort of address the, the whole psychology thing, I, t- I spoke to our colleague, uh, Kelly Lloyd, yeah. recently, who also has a background in psychology. And as I said to her, 
um, you know, so, so it, it's come from psychology, has it, open research in, in some ways or a big part of it because of that replication issue? Yeah, I think the replication issue was really having a bit of a moment in psychology because it was essentially, um, so there was this 2015 paper that I talk about all the time uh, by uh, a group of authors called the Open Science Collaboration, where basically they took 100 of psychology's most, I think they were like the most influential studies and tried to um, replicate them and found that in the in the original studies was something like 97 or something percent of the studies had significant uh, results. So they found what they expected to find. Um, but then when they tried to replicate them, it was something like 36%. So there was this whole kind of conversation movement moment um, after that paper where I think psychology, particularly social psychology, started really seriously asking itself, well, what does it mean if we can't replicate some of our most influential findings? Is it because there's something wrong with the original? Is it because the times are changing and just, you know, social psychology moves on? Or is it something more kind of sinister? And I think that that whole conversation around what does it mean if we're humans studying other humans and we can't replicate each other's work or reproduce each other's work, what does that actually mean? Um, has sparked a lot of these big conversations now about what does it mean to have robust evidence and all this kind of thing so I think yeah it sounds or what my impression is that a lot of the open research conversation has come from this kind of panic mm -hmm. about what does it mean that we can't replicate our findings in social psychology and now it's kind of there's lessons learned across disciplines I, I was just going to say I mean I don't want to put you you know on the spot for other disciplines but mm -hmm. you know and actually to talk to those disciplines but is there perhaps a danger do you think of People say, you know, this is a, it's a psychology problem, whereas actually there's evidence emerging that it does affect a much mm. wider range of disciplines than, than just psychology. Yeah, well, I think so. One of the things that really interests me about open research is the kind of questions that it allows us to ask. So I think that one of the most promising things that have come out of the, I don't really like the term replication crisis because it feels a bit dramatic, but it's come out of this kind of replication conversation in psychology is that it is a or it's provided a language to articulate questions like what does it mean to have robust evidence when are we sure that a finding is robust and that we can trust it what does it mean if our research is credible and i think all of those kind of questions whether or not there's evidence for a replication crisis or not all of those questions are applicable and interesting to any discipline right so i think that one of the kind of parts of the open research conversation that really interests me are the really like kind of meaty, almost like epistemological questions about how do we know that our findings are meaningful? Um, and what are the kind of standards that we judge how meaningful or how trustworthy or important our findings are? And I think that kind of set of questions you can ask for any discipline or any subdiscipline. So I've given like open research talks in like applied linguistics conferences and like physics conferences. And when I talk about things like what does robust research mean, that question kind of chimes with everyone, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, just as an aside, because um, I've learned an awful lot in my role. And mm -hmm. again, I, I'm always, you know, talking about I'm essentially a lay person. You know, I'm not a psychologist or I don't have a discipline. Um, and as a central service, it's a challenge for that for supporting different disciplines. Mm. Um, so I learned, for example, about pre-registration from, from Kelly mm -hmm. um, and the reproducibility journal club, et cetera. 
Um, and then in the course of my work, I mentioned that to uh, an earth scientist, mm -hmm. I think, who didn't know what it was and hadn't used pre-registration. But when I explained, understood how that could be of value for his discipline. So I suppose it's trying to bridge the gap between disciplines and bring different practices into different disciplines where they're using statistics, I suppose, so it might be relevant. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, that, all that side of things and, you know, the reproducibility is, is really interesting. But I was also interested looking um, at your sort of um, feminist perspectives. Mm. And I know you wrote um, a paper, with, again, with Kelly. Or to, you know, um, Kelly's was the last podcast that you would have heard before this. If you haven't, you go and check it. You can go and listen to that. So you wrote a paper, I think, with Kelly and uh, other colleagues around navigating open science as an early career feminist researcher. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in that, how you started pulling out not just the the you know the 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 issues around reproducibility but inclusivity as well um, yeah perhaps you, I'm sure you can talk about much more articulately than I can if you could maybe yeah so that that whole paper kind of came out from so all the authors on that paper are kind of self-defined early career feminist researchers and what I was noticing is I was having a lot of coffees with a lot of my kind of PhD friends who all were really sympathetic to the values and kind of mission of open research or open science. So like, yes, research should be transparent. It should be robust. It should be all of these things. We get it, we're on board. But what was, and there was kind of this kind of, what I was noticing is the sort of party line, if you like, of, oh, we think research should be robust and transparent that loads of people were subscribing to and endorsing. But then what was happening more kind of on the ground particularly for early career people and particularly for early career researchers who occupy research spaces that are quite kind of contentious or marginalized is that people were saying yes it's all well and good that this is good for research but what does this mean for me as a researcher and I started having these conversations then this, we kind of brought together this dream team of I think there's 10 of us on the paper and um, who were, were all kind of having these individual conversations around really trying to stress the importance that of kind of bridging together the stuff that's good for research and what that actually means for the people doing the research. Because if you have um, all these efforts to, for example, like make data more transparent and make things more open, which means that by definition, it's more easy to find mistakes and it's more easy to kind of um, question claims, then that's all well and good, but then you need to make sure that you've got a culture that can respond to things like questioning claims and finding mistakes in a way that's compassionate and in a way that's fair and kind of collegiate. And what I was kind of noticing from the more people I spoke to is that actually there wasn't, or there was a perception, particularly in certain disciplines within, for example, like certain parts of social psychology or um, psychology more broadly, that people were saying, you know, I really, I really believe that data should be made open, but what then happens if I'm kind of out of what happens if I find a mistake and there were a couple of notable examples of early career feminist researchers who um particularly on things like platforms like Twitter were really experiencing like proper hostility um and aggression in the name of like open science so we kind of wrote that paper to try and center those experiences of basically just trying to kind of remind the field 
um, that when we're talking about research, it's not done in a vacuum, like it's done by humans and the need to kind of humanize and make compassionate our um, research culture above and beyond caring about the, the actual integrity of the research itself. Yeah, and that sort of became termed in it broken science, broken science the, yeah. the efforts to grow. So we touched on that also with Kelly, and that was um uh, an article was it by Kirsty Whitaker and Olivia Guest. Yeah. With that term broken science. And uh, but Kelly made the point, as I think it does in your paper as well, that that's not necessarily gendered, although strictly, I mean, because of the power imbalances, it tends to be yeah. white I, men in positions of power, perhaps. Yeah, so. I think it's really important though that it's not a gender thing like, this isn't a kind of like men versus women thing like I'm, I'm, and I guess that my whole kind of feminist approach um makes that quite clear that I think that there's way more that kind of a feminist lens can offer above and beyond looking specifically at like gendered experiences I think for me it's about power yeah. and it's about voice and about kind of inequalities um and Kirsty Whitaker and Olivia Guest make it really clear in their um when they first coined the term broken science in an um, article in The Psychologist, that they're like, not all bros are men and not all men are bros or something. Mm. Um, and I think that that feels quite important because it is a little bit kind of tongue-in-cheek, colloquial, this yeah. sort of thing. But I think what, what has been really powerful is it has given, uh, I guess, people like me and people like my early career colleagues and not early career colleagues, colleagues, um, a kind of set of, or I guess a language to articulate that kind of feeling of, I don't really know if this culture is safe for me to be really like transparent. Being, being exposed. And being exposed. Yeah. And being, so whenever I talk about like growth and science, I always have this slide that kind of has a scale and on um, one axis there's like research and vulnerability and another there's research transparency. And I think they are almost a direct correlation with, yes, it's great to be as transparent as we can be, but at least we need to have a bit of a conversation about what that means in terms of vulnerability of researchers, particularly the researchers who might not have kind of good support that they can rely on or who might um, occupy researcher topics that are, um, or that lend themselves more to kind of hostility and politics, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, as I say, I'm just really interested in the, the con in, in the context of research culture, how, yeah. how this how this sort of you know um, relates directly to open research in a mm -hmm. way that might not be immediately mm -hmm. obvious to people coming to it from the outside. Um, so you, you sort of explained how you you became interested in open research through your PhD, etc. And then I think you become involved with quite a lot of communities. Um, I mean, there's a lot happening in the open research mm -hmm. space, isn't there, at the moment, or the open science space? So. Um, one of the ones we mentioned was Fort. Um, perhaps tell us a little bit about Fort or maybe some of the other um, organisations you're part yeah, of. Yeah, so so I guess I kind of went through my PhD and was interested in open research. I was kind of forced to be interested in open research because um, nothing <laughs> was replicating. And then kind of turned my attention to, OK, well, all of the stuff that I've been learning about open research has kind of come like on the grapevine and has been you know, or I happen to be at events and happen to learn about this stuff. And now one of the things that I just think is really, really important that open research and these kind of conversations are integrated into training and like kind of undergraduate grassroots training. So FORD is the Framework for Open and Reproducible Research Training. Um, and it's basically a community. It was started by um, PhD students and now it's kind of grown, grown, grown. It's basically a community of 
people all around the world who I guess believe that open and reproducible research should be integrated into into training and that includes everything from kind of um well everything actually from like kind of high school science all the way up to um sort of PhD training and beyond um so we do things like uh there's different projects that are happening so I led a project in Fort that was all about articulating the impact of open research on student outcomes um, there's a whole load of work being done in Fort around like EDI issues and neurodiversity that we run systematic reviews we write papers we do studies like it's a really kind of um productive community as well as being a space where people can chat um so I think getting involved with Fort was one of the best things that I ever did um because it is it is a proper kind of big team science initiative if you like so we actually produce things as a as a collective which I think is quite powerful yeah and you did of course you did a talk for us um, mm. which I'll because we've put show notes on this when it when it goes out so I'll link to the talk you did for us on how does open research impact student student outcomes and yeah. you talked in a lot more detail in that tour than you about that particular paper yeah. and the approach and the methodology yeah. um, to that kind of thing I think you were you touched on three aspects. I mean, it might be worth just revisiting now, if if that's okay. I mean, scientific literacies, mm-hmm. student engagement, and attitudes towards science were the yeah. were the three things you were, were interested in. Um, could you, do you want to tell us a little bit about? Yeah, sure. That? So that whole project. So this came from. So most of the projects that happen with Fort come from some kind of conversation on our Slack channel, and then someone says, "Right, let's do it. Let let this will be our next thing." And a few people were saying in the community that they really get the kind of moral case for why we should integrate open research into the curriculum or into training or whatever. Um, so like, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's good for science and we need science to be transparent, all of this kind of stuff. Um, but what they were, or what some people were struggling with is how to articulate the kind of impact on students um, to, to things like their, for example, university department. So what we wanted to create is basically a kind of synthesis of the evidence um, that looks at whether integrating open research actually does anything in terms of um, student impact. So does it actually impact student outcomes in any way, or is it more of a kind of, well, it's good for research, so it should be integrated into the curriculum. So we ran um, a really big, I think there were 75 of us on the eventual paper, where a really big systematic review um, that looked across those three different domains. So attitudes towards science, so does it impact how students trust science, whether they think it's credible, whether they want to have a career in science, does it impact their engagement? So do they like their studies more? Are they more motivated? They're more interested. Um, and does it impact um, statistical literacy? So were they able to do stats better if it's taught in an open research way? Um, and one of the big things from that review that we highlighted is the lack of good evidence (laughs) so now we are kind of working more on I guess trying to like fill that gap in the evidence um and to really advocate for like good empirical robust investigations about what does integrating open research actually do for student outcomes yeah and I I mean uh, as you know we're really interested in that work from our perspective in the library and Mm -hmm. the, the broader picture across the universities we try to promote open research and open 
science principles because in my experience it can be quite difficult to articulate the benefits you know not uh, it can be a bit abstract and that's Mm -hmm. to do perhaps with the incentive structures that aren't yet perhaps in place do you think I mean what what are the other barriers to open to open research um systemic issues with what for research students well I I suppose that's you know Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sort of thinking out loud but are they related i mean they are mm. they, i suppose because there's people like you who are obviously um and passionate about open science and mm. in a position to be able to teach your students but do we perhaps lack the skills across the yeah, university to, to teach them i don't know as i say i just sort of I'm, it's interesting to think about how we can embed this mm. on the practical side i suppose you know we talked about your paper and need more evidence etc but what can we yeah, well, I guess that because I have a, a very complicated thoughts and feelings about things like incentives, mm. because so I've, I've kind of over the past few years have made the switch from doing like kind of experimental, quantitative, statistical type psychology to doing now like the 99% of the stuff that I do is uh, qualitative or participatory and that kind of stuff. And actually what that's meant is that there's loads of open research practices that all of a sudden are just not compatible with the kind of research that I do and not in a way that oh it's because I need to think about it more or because I need to front load the work or need more time or more training just purely because it's just not compatible it's not it doesn't it doesn't make sense to for example pre-register some of my qualitative work because it's really exploratory and it doesn't add anything and so I've kind of come from um a place a few years ago when I was really advocating for like there needs to be the kind of really formal top-down incentives for like engagement in open research to now thinking oh well actually there's some really legitimate reasons why people can kind of happily opt out of some open research practices and I think the thing that we the like the royal we haven't yet figured out is how to differentiate people who are thinking about open research and have kind of made the, I don't know, epistemological, methodological, ontological, whatever, decision that that open research practice isn't appropriate for them versus the people who don't engage with open research research because they either kind of need more training or because they haven't heard of it or because they don't want to. So, um, yeah, I think that that feels like where we, the collective we, are kind of at with incentives because um, it is like there's a there's a lot and I've, I've written about this quite a lot recently that there are a lot of open research practices that just don't make sense for some qualitative yeah. research and some of my colleagues say this and they're like oh yeah but it, it kind of does make sense because it's flexible but it doesn't yeah. for me most open research practices should be aiming to um kind of reduce questionable research practices and if the questionable research practice isn't relevant for your method then what is the point of engaging with that tool? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, uh, that nuance, um, I think, is a really important conversation. I mean, it's mm. we've had similar conversations, I think, in the library because I keep sort of saying, well, we keep talking about open, and immediately that switches people off. Because, well, I can't be open. Yeah. Um, so we talk about fair data, for mm. example, which mm. isn't necessarily open. Mm. Um, but the language of open can perhaps feel exclusive exclusionary yeah. um, and had a, a, a conversation with Kelly again actually just to, to, to mention Kelly again so a paper that 
she did and qualitative interviews mm. um and she you know the ethics around anonymizing those and making sure that that was all done ethically i mean it's a major issue for us in this team yeah. actually trying to manage yeah. that kind of yeah. imagine that kind of thing and you've touched on it in your paper as well i think that's mm. sort of suggesting that actually early career feminist researchers might be actually doing that more qualitative research yeah as well so there's a cultural aspect to the type of research that different yeah demographics exactly. are doing as well perhaps. exactly and i think that there's a danger in the conversation around open research and qualitative research or creative research or participatory research that is kind of seems to be centering a bit around oh well, the, these are all the ways that you can participate if you just think about it enough or if you build it into your ethics or things like that and actually what I would really welcome is a bit more of a kind of nuance as you say um appreciation that yes there's there's all of these open research practices in a kind of buffet and actually not all of them will be appropriate and not all of them will be relevant and that kind of goes beyond oh it's because you need time and training and more because you can make an informed decision about actually that that tool or practice isn't appropriate or isn't relevant um and yeah so I think that that kind of move to more like legitimizing opting out which sounds counterintuitive yeah, yeah, yeah. um but I think it feels in, it feels important in order to be um really inclusive you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I, th I think, you know, as you say, that the whole conversation around incentivizing is is problematic or measuring, you know, how yes. do we measure these things? Um, but at the same time, there are existing incentives mm -hmm. that are perhaps against the open agenda as well, you know, like yeah, um, publish or perish. And just mm -hmm. the, the, so again, it's a cultural aspect that, yeah. but trying to unpick those, I think is is very difficult. Yeah, and it's like we talk in the paper about a term, that I, I don't know if we actually use this term, but about slope and science, <laughs> yeah. which I really, really like. And I think that this whole move to slow down research um, feels really important like that feels like a really good progress and I guess that kind of also by definition um like truly participatory research or citizen science or qualitative research is inherently slower like it's kind of it's inherently more thoughtful and slower and your data is richer and it takes longer to analyze and this kind of thing so I do think that there's potential for um the kind of open research conversations and some of the existing, I guess, kind of like feminist research principles that they can be allies to one another. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this whole move to just really just slow, slow down, slow down and really think about kind of what is your research question? How can this be done as open as possible, as close as necessary in a way that kind of is as close to the values of transparency and rigor in a way that makes sense for your approach to your research and I, and I think that that to me is is the real hallmark of really good research when it's just slowed down a little bit yeah uh, no, no yeah the, the concept of slow slow I've heard the term sloping before but, yeah, slope but, but slow 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 science down and you know and again that's to do with the culture isn't it and the salami slicing and making yeah. and publishing rapidly and maybe you know getting the best ref results and all that kind of yeah. stuff is part, part of the culture um so where i sort of took that back towards staff perhaps away from students but i suppose that's an interesting part of the conversation as well for me because the conversations that that we've had already around you know in my role and our team as a central service in the library we support 
PGRs and staff. You know, we, we we're not employed to support students, mm-hmm. um, which will apply. You know, so again, how do we sort of collaborate? I suppose mm-hmm. in, in terms of encouraging um, better practice with students as well as well as staff. Yeah. Um, but perhaps just try and talk about that a little bit in terms of how we can perhaps embed it a bit in the curriculum. There's a program at Leeds called Curriculum Redefined, mm. isn't there, that we're hoping to maybe leverage a little bit in this direction? Yeah, so part of my role um, is I'm a Curriculum Redefined lecturer. So what that means is that part of my job is to contribute to the kind of redefine, redesign of the, I guess, of our like psychology programmes. So what we're doing with that is trying to really explicitly integrate open research into the curriculum. Um, It's really hard. (laughs) It's really hard because um, I guess because there's so many, like in psychology, so many students and there's three years. And then in terms of like the major project at the end of third year or in third year, um, there's so many different supervisors. So trying to kind of have a kind of cohesive, like these are our principles and this is what matters and this is what we think research should be in a way that's inclusive to all research methods and in a way that it doesn't make for a kind of confusing or disjointed student experience is really difficult because it's a bit like when you're, one of the lectures that I do currently that I think is in like week two of students when they first join on the BSc in psychology um, is I talk to them about replication and reproducibility and open research and it's a, it's a bit of a kind of delicate game because for some of them they really get it and it's like oh great you know it, I'm hoping that it can feel a little bit empowering because it's like oh you can contribute to not knowledge because we're kind of having this like reappraisal of psychology at the moment but I'm also very aware that I'm sure that there's some students who are sort of it feels or that kind of lack of not necessarily credibility but lack of um concrete answers unsettling can feel a bit unsettling yeah um so I definitely think that with curriculum redefine we've got our work out for us to try and think instead of just trying to kind of sprinkle it across the curriculum that already exists what would this actually look like if we um yeah if we kind of integrate the principles of open research from day one in terms of how we structure the curriculum what we teach how we teach um so, yeah, so we're, we're only kind of a few months into that process. Um, but I think it'd be really interesting to see what that looks like. And I guess you're just talking from a psychology perspective, mm. because, again, immediately I'm, tr- I'm, I'm naturally trying to think broader than that, yeah. you know, and how can we bring that into other disciplines? I guess there's no easy answer to that. So mm. it's just uh, we really need to take a sort of longitudinal view and, and yeah. take it one step at a time. And hopefully the things that you learn from, from doing it in psychology, we can try to extend to other yeah exactly discipline and and I think as well it's really important to me that open research or the engagement in open research doesn't become about kind of ticking boxes of like practices you know like open research doesn't mean you pre-register or that you make your data open it means that you are kind of attentive to principles like transparency and openness and fair data and those kind of more like abstract principles about how we do research rather than you have engaged in X, Y, and Z behavior. So I think I would really kind of encourage, particularly curriculum redefined colleagues, but also everyone to think about, well, it might mean that, you know, free registration doesn't make sense for your discipline or you don't work with data. So open data doesn't make sense, but those kind of 
fundamental principles. Um, and I think things like inclusivity and compassion and that kind of thing, I think I see as being open research principles as well. So how can we, you know, design a curriculum that um, champions those values? Yeah, and uh, and again, I don't want to throw too much of a curveball, but I, again, I'm just thinking out loud. To what extent is this relevant, do you think, outside the academy? Or is it, you know, I mean, uh, 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 what I'm thinking of, I suppose, is, again, public trust in science. Mm. You know, it just made me think when you were talking about your students, it might be unsettling that, you know, you know, all the the the, the lack of perhaps scientific literacy and that, well, science, uh, all scientists think something different. So how can we believe what they say or trust what they say, you know, through the COVID pandemic or whatever yeah. it might be? I mean, is it a bigger societal question? Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's a big question. That's the, I think that's above my pay grade, but that's a big question. Yeah, because I think things like like all the the things we looked at in the systematic review around like um, engagement, attitudes towards science, scientific literacies that really that beyond kind of what does that look like for undergraduate students that those kind of things um, you'd hope that there's some kind of initiative to combat those just generally in the public. Um, and that's why I think that because I always try and talk about open research and psychology, not in terms of like, oh, we're having a crisis and nothing will replicate and everything's miserable, but more that this is such an exciting time to be even just kind of thinking about science and knowledge and life because we're having this like we're really taking seriously kind of evidence and methodology and how we communicate our science. And I think because there's things like, you know, um, it's all well and good. You could do a really great, really robust research study and it's all pre-registered and the data's open and it's really robust and lovely. But then if the media reports it in a way that then kind of overstates the claims, for example, and then that's what gets communicated. And then there's this whole issue of like credibility um, that's, yeah, isn't necessarily in the academy, but still is really important in terms of um, how we communicate our research in a way that has kind of meaningful impact so I think that yeah the whole open research conversation is for everyone yeah and, and that, I'm just thinking as well I'm in a specific practice perhaps that we haven't touched on which I think you do you preprint I think as yeah, as, 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 as a rule mm -hmm. uh, but again there's been some nuance around that discussion yeah. hasn't there again through Covid and the fact that that picked up by the media and maybe communicated yeah. in a way that isn't necessarily yeah I think I think preprint is, is really complicated because I preprint everything kind of just by default um because there's um like there's some papers that are being cited all the time now that as preprints that are still stuck under review somewhere because I don't know couldn't find reviewers or anything so that's really useful and I think when I was kind of on the job market it was really useful because I could show oh here's everything I've been working on and it's all under review but trust me it exists but I also think that, you know, peer review is there for a reason um, and trying to kind of <laughs> promote my work, but also caveat it gently with it has not yet been peer reviewed. Yeah. But that is quite a nuanced thing to say. And I get that like other kind of scientists and researchers may understand the nuances of that. But what does that look like, as you say, when it comes to um, comms and media and kind of more public uh, consumption of that science? So I think it is it is complicated, but generally I'm a big fan of preprints because I think that it's it's one way of kind of um, I guess like democratizing access to yeah. research. Well, the whole open access thing is yeah. you know, another 
another conversation. But I suppose in that, just interested in your experience or opinion of so-called open peer review. Mm. You know, it, it just does that work in your discipline? You know, where because it's in the public domain, so your peers can look at it and scrutinize it and comment on it if they wish. But do they or? Yeah, I've done. Um, so it was a general rule whenever I peer review. I sign all of my reviews. So I think that in the spirit of transparency, I sign my reviews, um, which feels a lot easier when you really like the <laughs> when you really like the paper. It, it felt very different um, when, for example, you're a review and you're like recommending rejection, or when there's like you know things wrong with it. Um, I think what it does, um, all the kind of practice of open peer review, is it's it's slightly kind of two sides to it but I think it has the potential to combat some of those issues around compassion and hostility and that kind of thing because more often than not that stuff is done when there's a kind of veil of anonymity um and I think kind of having a culture where yes we can like criticize or not criticize we can critique each other's work because that's important but if you have to put your name to it I think it could potentially be one mechanism to um yeah to kind of create more of like a compassionate culture yeah. but then we also see examples where people are just kind of actively hostile on twitter where their names attached to the comments so it yeah. doesn't work yeah. all the time yeah. but I'm, I'm hoping that it, it should in theory be better for things like accountability yeah. um well that's kind of my own experience that i feel it's a bit like i remember um someone said to me when i was like marking my first piece of student work they were like, don't put anything on that piece of student work that you wouldn't be happy to sit across having a coffee with someone and say to them. And I think that having more of that kind of vibe with peer review um, should help some of those things we talk about in the paper in terms of like hostility and unkindness and separating the research from the researcher and things like that. Yeah, no, that's great. That's a really interesting conversation. Thank you. I suppose you've already referred to some of the, you know, the need for more evidence, et cetera. But I, so I suppose the question is you know what's next for you have you got other projects I, I know that there's one project that's uh, yet to be um secured around trying to embed in the curriculum isn't there mm-hmm. so yeah. you and I have been have been looking at yes. um anything else in the pipeline for you into in this sort of arena um so one of my big things <laughs> is so I'm trying to um I'm trying to design something that's that's going to be um useful to try and look at student outcomes more nationally particularly in psychology so it's very like early stages at the moment because I need to apply for funding which that whole process just scares me a bit but I'm trying to design some kind of like randomized control trial thing that I'm sketching out at the moment with some colleagues in psychology that aims to look at um so for the institutions that really explicitly integrate open research into their curricula do they show any difference in student outcomes compared to the institutions that don't to try everything is I'm doing at the moment is trying to kind of fill this gap in the literature of needing really good empirical evidence to I guess kind of evidence or show any impact that open research has on student outcomes um so that's yeah that's the biggie that I'm working on at the moment (laughs) good good luck with that thanks (laughs) um so no that's been really interesting as I say a lot lot of I think really interesting themes of how it sort of, you know, how open research really is part of research culture that, mm. you know, hopefully explore with you in um, more detail um, in the future. So, uh, but thank you for that. Thanks very much for your time and um, I'll let you get on. Thank you. Okay. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes. And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Email us at academicdev at leads.ac.uk. Thanks for listening, and here's to you and your research culture.